Oh, welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast, Rooster Road Trip, day number four. We put a whole bunch of names in the box in Outshook. Andrew's back. Andrew was back naturally as the co-host for Rooster Road Trip. Glad and, to be here. And uh, we're joined by two new Rooster Road Trip guests. Becca Clute, habitat specialist out of Detroit Lakes, mm-hmm. works for Pheasants Forever, and making his second on the wing podcast appearance. And I'll have you know, he's our most frequent listener. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell you get the Nielsen ratings? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I'll, I'm guilty. Yep. <laughs> Dave's online Spend again. Spent a lot of time in the car. Uh, Dave Simonette uh, is very kind to join us. You know the name as the lead singer of Trampled by Turtles, uh, Dead Man Winter, and a new, newish now, newish since COVID, right? It came out like right during COVID, the solo album. Yeah, yeah. Red Tail. Just out into the void. No, I, no concerts, you know, just put it out at the maybe wrong time. I don't know. Who can <laughs> tell? I don't know if it's hard to say. And um, we also did the Trampled by Pheasants membership promotion yes. with you. And personally want to thank you for over 400 All right. people have joined Pheasants Forever. That's wonderful. To get the uh, Trampled by Pheasants. And Good it's job. gone now. So we got to come it's up gone. with... It's gone. It's gone. It's sold out. <laughs> we got to come up with... Uh, with the col- collaborative yeah, another, idea for number two. Okay, we'll get the wheels turning. So maybe there's a rooster road trip spin to it um, because you joined us yeah. today. But, uh, of course, you know, taking center stage was Becca because she grabbed the baton from Megan, who was the biologist um, who joined us the first couple of days of the road trip, um, or I guess days two and day three. And Megan, uh, Megan put us on the board mm-hmm. for the first two days, mm-hmm. and you didn't uh, y- you didn't hesitate to put us on the board today. No. no. So uh, let, let's let's talk through the very first field, and I want to hear it from your perspective. So the first, well, we hunted nothing but waterfowl production areas today, which is federally owned land. Um, the first field we hunted today. Um, I brought my one-year-old Springer Spaniel, and I thought it was just chaos because we had, <laughs> you know, him and I, we've never really hunted pheasants before, and he's never hunted with such a big group of people and so many dogs. Yeah. I was like, as long as he's with someone else, I'm just going to be happy. But um, I heard good things about him, so I was pretty happy about that. And then um, we had six hen flushes. Um in that first field that we walked. Uh, and then the second field That's that right. we walked. I'm getting ahead of myself, aren't yeah. I? Because yep. we didn't actually get a bird in the first field. Nope. I don't, I, I sort of leaped right to it because it was so exciting. The first, <laughs> the first field was like working out the kinks. And then the That's second it. field is where things kind of came together. So we, um, you know, we parked at this other WPA and we're, we're walking south over this hill where there's a bunch of tall grass and at the bottom of the hill there's a wetland and we saw a rooster squirt over this i don't know it was probably 20 yards wide mm-hmm. was this finger of this wetland so we were like there's a rooster let's go get it so we all kind of hustled over there and um you know we just lined up and pushed to where we thought we saw the birds or the birds set down 
Um, it just so happened that my dog was kind of just right in front of me and he, he flushed the pheasant and I shot Bob, you and I both shot at him. I didn't actually shoot at that one. You didn't? No, I didn't shoot on the left. Somebody on, um, to the right of you shot. I took a shot, but I, but it was already on its like, it was, yeah, it was, it was starting its trajectory down. Like, so like she hit it oh, yeah. just as I was also pulling the trigger. So that was all her. See, yeah. I'm the kind of, this happened to us a couple of weeks ago too, with a pheasant or not a pheasant with a grouse. And, um, I asked my husband if, if he shot, it was like, Oh man, you hit that thing. And he's like, I didn't even pull the trigger on that. Like you shot it, but. At any rate, so we got that bird, um, and there were some other dogs that were over that, that um, got the retrieve for Wiley. So, you know, it was a good team effort by the dogs, and we're sitting there chatting about it, and then all of a sudden, Matt, who's on the far right side of the line, mm-hmm. I think he kind of played that game of, like, you know, sometimes you stand there for long enough, and that makes that bird really nervous, and it can't take it anymore, and it blew out over over this wetland, and he shot it. It went down in the wetland, and we were like, what dog is going to go get this thing? And, um, you know, Wiley's done just a few water retrieves. So I was like, well, you know, he might be able to go over and get it. So all the dogs are over there. And uh, Bob, yours was the one who ended up with the with the water retrieve, and you were just like proud papa of that <laughs> dog. <laughs> That's probably why I went to field number two first <laughs> because i i have completely forgotten the, about the fact that we actually hunted a wpa before we got to that <laughs> um and uh, when that when matt made that shot uh, my expect or th- that's where i actually thought the first rooster was going to get out from because i think that bird that matt shot was that first bird that we mm-hmm. saw land into the wetland because it was a little i don't closer. know I, I think it was a different one because, you do yeah because i was right to I was two Becca's right, uh-huh. and I was looking at you, and I, I pointed. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that bird dropped like right in here, mm-hmm. and it was two seconds later the bird got up right where I was pointing. Okay, because Wiley just I nailed didn't, it. Yeah, I didn't have it marked very well nope. then, because I was in the back of my mind. I was saying we should probably still be, and I saw that rooster get up, and you know Matt just made a great shot, mm-hmm. and it, but it did fall into the wetland, and I was thinking to myself. Oh boy, I wish I wish Aspen. That's the exactly yellow, what I was thinking. Yellow lab with, but was then there. I remembered. Wait a second, Wiley's a spaniel. Yep, we got this, and mm-hmm. so I fully expected uh, Wiley to be the the one to bring it back. But that's that's not the case. So why don't you give oh, us well, a, why don't you give us a run through so of, of what in my happened mind, in this retrieve? Yeah, in my mind, I was I was absolutely thinking we're going to have to go back and get Aspen, and, and Aspen's going to be able to go out and get this because I don't think my um, older dog Eski, I don't think she would have. Um, but so I had Gitchy, who's one year old, and it, we play a lot of bumpers in in lakes. You know, throw the bumper, and she loves the water. She's kind of a dock diver, uh, just crazy about the water, and that's been never the case since we started bringing her up to Lake Superior, which she's named after Gitchy, right? Gitchy mm-hmm. Gumi, mm-hmm. and um, so I took a stick. And all the other dogs are kind of like prancing around the edge. And I took a stick and threw it out. And Gitchy just went boom, just went out that direction. And she started sniffing the air. And like, make no mistake about it, she didn't beeline directly for this. Um, 
but she she went in that direction. I'm thinking, boy, this is just such a long shot. I mean, she's retrieved one bird, which we saw on was it on Monday of the road trip. One one bird, period, in her entire one wild bird in her entire life. Like, well, what the heck? And threw that stick out there, and she's sort of swimming, winding. And Matt's like, she's getting close. Go left. And and I kind of wave in her left, and before long. You know, she's kind of digging in the water. I'm like, God, <laughs> she's a one-year-old shorter. And I'm thinking to myself, God, I hope she doesn't drown. <laughs> and she sticks her head down and pulls up this rooster and starts swimming back. And I set my gun in into the grass and I was calling. I couldn't believe it, honestly. I mean, that was, without a doubt, the high point of the trip for me i was like holy cow that was so cool to see it was really i yeah. mean you know i talked about it on the show um on the episode last night you know meredith and i haven't ever been able to have kids right so i'm absolutely 100 percent guilty of anthropomorphizing our dogs you know <laughs> yeah. we I love the heck out of them and treat them like little human beings and I just couldn't have been a prouder papa when, they, when <laughs> well, she The, the came whole back. group was proud. Yeah, it was, the the it energy was, a, was just electric. Like, oh, everyone yeah. was so excited. It was a very happy moment. And, and you, you turned around and you're just like, I don't care how many times I missed this trip. That totally made it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I try. I re- reminded myself about that at 30 minutes later when I did miss. It's <laughs> like Gitchy made a great retreat. Um, but yeah, boy, I I, I really did um, uh, was surprised and just it, it taught me just a lesson of just how. You just can't underestimate these dogs. I mean, they just, they, you know, she's never, she's retrieved one other bird, you know, and here she, she didn't see that bird go down. It's in the water. She's only retrieved once in her entire life. And to have that, have her come back, I was thinking I was, you know, somebody was going to either go back and get the lab or strip down and wait (laughs) out there. Right. Because it wasn't, it didn't look like it was super far out. But it was far enough where somebody was gonna have to was retrieve that one. Yeah. So she saved somebody some wet, <laughs> yeah. wet underwear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was that was pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so as as you're walking through these WPAs, mm-hmm. in the so the first one we walked through had a whole bunch of brush. Yep. Um, tell me about what what why that was. Um. So I guess I noticed really on that first WPA where it was really brushy was more down in wet areas. So that's what we would call like a, like a forested riparian mm. areas, the technical term for the ecological area. So, um, you know, that's kind of where, where some, um, trees and stuff are supposed to be. But, um, when we were walking, there were these huge brush piles. Is yep. that what you're talking about? Yeah. The big brush yep. piles. Okay. So, so what we ended up doing when we acquired that property for the U S fish and wildlife service and when pheasants forever was still holding it as the owner, we went in there and removed any of the trees that like quote unquote, aren't supposed to be there. Mm. So, you know, I, in my blog tomorrow, you'll hear me talk about, there's a couple eco regions in Minnesota and where we are today is in the grassland region. And the 
issue that the grassland region is having is woody encroachment from its neighboring ecoregion, which is the deciduous forest. Um, so what we did was we went in and we took out all those trees, put them in piles. Fish and Wildlife Service is going to burn them in the winter. Um, but by removing those trees, you're increasing the quality of the habitat for those birds, not just for like one part of the year or one part of their life, but for the entire year and their whole life. And that's kind of how we think about management is it's like, you know, how in one piece of property am I going to provide nesting cover? Mm Mm-hmm brood rearing habitat um and then wintering cover too Mm. which is really important um so when we take out those trees um a a huge predator for um upland nesting game birds in general or or upland nesting ducks too are aerial predators so um when you have perches for those aerial predators you're gonna you know bump up the um chance that those nests or the hens themselves are going to be depredated or killed by an aerial predator um and then sometimes um when you have like tree rows or shelter belts um or big groves of trees that's also areas where predators might make their little hidey home Hmm. or it creates an edge for predators to 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 go along Hmm. so if you decrease the amount of edge then the predators are, you know, they're going to travel along that perimeter and yeah, they'll go like within the unit, but it's like, you're just making that little postage stamp bigger and you're, you're adding more nesting area and more quality nesting area where the the predators might not get to those nests or those birds as easy. So before the, like <coughs> the prairie and the woodlands were so cut up by, you know, farms and privately owned land, right? When that border um was its natural border but that was kind of a constantly moving thing right i mean depending on years of climate the prayer would move east and then the woods another years the woods would encroach west and that kind of thing it would so be a moving border a, a little bit but the thing that you also have to think about is grasslands are relatively young when it comes to succession. So that's basically like, okay, if there's a disturbance that's going to, you know, wipe out this this particular habitat, what's the youngest sure. vegetative community there and what's the oldest? And we see, it's really cool because in Minnesota, we see that from one side of the state to the other. So prairie is really young. Hmm. So in order to keep prairie prairie, we need to be constantly disturbing it. In places where it could become woodland, right? Yes. But so think about like out west where it's prairie, like eastern Montana or whatever, mm-hmm. is not really in a danger of becoming a forest. Correct? No. So there is um, some issue with seed source, so surrounding seed sources. So uh-huh. there's just like, you know, grassland that's right up against, you know, a bunch of, you know, right. aspen. Yeah, Aspen's really good at encroaching on yeah. the prairie. Um, so there is some issue with seed source there. And if you let those little suckers, you know, grow up or, you know, all mm-hmm. those other trees grow up, um, they're going to slowly keep encroaching into that yeah, grassland. So if anything, that border is moving further west. Sure. And by us doing management, um, mm-hmm. either by fire 
which mm-hmm. is, you know, you think about out west, that's the big way right. how and those grasslands are staying young. Probably used to be like that here too, right? Yes. Naturally. Yep. Um, so, you know, we do that with fire. We'll do that with grazing. So that last, um, we actually hunted three properties, did we? Four. Uh, four. four, technically. Yep. So the last property that we hunted today, um, you'll notice that there was a fence around uh-huh. the mm-hmm. whole thing. Um, so what we'll do, Pheasants Forever will do sometimes too, is when um, we'll get a request from either the Minnesota DNR or Fish and Wildlife Service, or sometimes we'll put up a fence around the unit so that people can come in and graze it. Cause that's the other, that's another big, you know, disturbance that'll set that back. Um, and then, you know, we too just, if there's a, a brome conversion that we're going to do, we might farm it as well, you know, mm. and kind of till it under. And then just, that's kind of like our starting from scratch. Sure. But, um, so Prairie is like the youngest, uh, I guess habitat. And then you get into the, like, um, the deciduous forest or we have the Aspen Parkland region up in the Northwest part of the state. And then the oldest, is the coniferous forest, right? Which is you know, northeast portion mm-hmm. of the state. Yeah, no prairies growing in there. But <laughs> unless it burns down. I was gonna say yeah. so. Um, a lot of what I work on is what's called our open landscapes grant, and it's a LSOHC funded grant um, that works to open up grassland in that coniferous forest that has remnant populations of sharp tails on it hmm. is that the reason for doing it is to to make habitat for that yes yeah, okay. yep yep so those rem those remnant populations are there so what we do is we do a lot of brush mowing um and then um putting in fire breaks too for the dnr um to burn so that we're we're opening up those pockets that had long ago more consistently experienced fire Right. So there are these patches of prairie in the the coniferous forest meadows. Yes, these big, but they're but I mean they're huge, yeah, and well. they they have to be huge for for sharp tails. I mean sharp tails are kind of a brushy species, but mm-hmm. they do need quite a bit of grass as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> I I love sharp tails. I did I'm my sorry. masters on sharp tails, so it's they have work. they have a special place in my heart and. Um, I was doing some some reading on the sharp-tailed population in north northeast Minnesota around that Aiken area, and they actually said that um, the years that the pop the sharp-tailed populations were the best were after some of like the massive wildfires up yeah. there, like the Hinkley mm-hmm. fire. Mm-hmm. The sharp-tails just saw a huge increase in their population after that because that disturbance yeah, came well. through and it ripped open a big area for them. So they're, they've always been native there. It yep. just was fire that kept it brushy habitat. And with the absence of fire? So with the absence of fire, the brush takes it takes over too much. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it Right, so you got to burn it, you got to graze it, you got to manage it down yep. somehow. Yep, yep. So like oh. I said, we do a lot of brush mowing. Um and then a lot of prescribed fire so there too. Your your title, habitat restoration specialist. Mm-hmm. So, are you out there on a tractor and 
no. you know, brush hog doing <laughs> that? Or uh, tell us what you do with it. So what I do is um, I will work with, I, I only work on public land. Me exclusively, I, I really only work on public land. Um, and so I work with either um, the Fish and Wildlife Service managers or the DNR managers or even some county managers where they're like, hey, we have this piece of property. We want to do some work on it. Can you help us? And a lot of the time it's, um, they don't have the time because they're stretched. I mean, they have a lot of property to manage, Mm -hmm. um, or they don't have the funds Mm -hmm. to manage some of these properties. So they come to people like, like pheasants forever and they apply for, you know, doing some of our programs. So, um, they can get some of this habitat work done. So what I do is I work with them. We come up with a plan on how we want to go about restoring that piece of property. And then I hire contractors to do it. Um, So what I'll do is I'll put projects out for bid to a bunch of local um, contractors who um, have had some experience doing uh, restoration work. I get those bids in, mm-hmm. I give it to the lowest bidder, and then um, they go ahead and do the work. And then either myself or the land the land manager will go out there and check and make sure things are going, you know, smoothly and be the site manager and everything. And then I pay the bill and then at 4.30, I get to go out there and have fun. Like, <laughs> so it's, it's really cool because, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, us being able to like make the places that are really special to us awesome mm-hmm. which is is so much fun and and I work statewide so I get to do stuff like I said up by Aiken or over by Detroit Lakes which is where I live I have some projects down in um Lincoln County and I have some over in the Twin Cities like huh. I get to go all over the place which is so awesome so yeah Detroit Lakes because a lot of people hear Detroit Lakes and think boy that's that's a little bit out of the pheasant range Mm -hmm. but you know even up there there's projects that you can do whether it's prairie chickens or sure Mm -hmm. yep so a lot of um the acquisition work that we do over there um we will partner quite a bit with the minnesota prairie chicken society Mm -hmm. um to work on doing some of that stuff there are pheasants up in Becker County, you know, Becker and Clay County. Mm-hmm. It's just that it does get a little too too cold and it was a little too harsh. But yeah, we'll work with the Prairie Chicken Society or the Minnesota Sharp Tail Grouse Society. Um, you know, Wild Turkey Federation, Minnesota Deer Hunters, mm-hmm. Ducks Unlimited, like we work with everybody. So we're like when I started working here, people would tell me it's more about the bird on her shirt. And that is so true. Like we just we just want to make habitat better in Minnesota. And that's what we, that's what we do. Well, when it comes to, to Minnesota specifically, no one's thinking about prairie chickens. No one's thinking about sharp-tailed grouse. So let's, let's take a step back here. Mm-hmm. And I'm more curious in terms of historically, what were those populations like? And where are we at today? Like, like honestly, with all the work that you're doing all over the place, like how are we as a state doing for those you know two birds okay so just for those two birds um they're both hurting pretty bad um because of habitat fragmentation you know um grass getting 
pulled out for agriculture or lack of disturbance um, and stuff like that. So historically, we have had greater the greater prairie chicken. There's greater prairie chickens up here in the north, and there's lesser prairie chickens that are more down in the south. And um, so we have our population pretty much sticks to the Red River Valley. So if you would imagine the Red River Valley, um, that's where our prairie chicken population is. Um, the sharp tails historically have been in the northern and the western part of the state. Um, and I'll also have to say we have two different um, subspecies of sharp tail. Really? Or we've historically had two different species, subspecies of sharp tails. So there's the prairie I'm trying to remember this. If there's, there's the prairie subspecies that's more in the east. And then there's the plain subspecies that you'll find in the west. And that's the subspecies that's in the Dakotas as well. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, they're both they're both native. And they've both been here, like, to the point where um, sharp tails are, are also called the firebird. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's very important to the Native American um folks who live up in northern Minnesota mm-hmm. um, and the, the prairie chickens as well. Um, so they've been here for a long time. But like I said, it's habitat fragmentation and degradation because, you know, it's not being um, disturbed. And then um, just losing habitat as well. And then climate change is also becoming more of an issue for just upland birds in general. Because when they go throughout the year their internal timing is triggered by the sun Mm -hmm. so at a certain point in the spring they're like it's time to you know start nesting it's time to start getting out on those legs and dancing and everything and um you know sometimes it's way too early and sometimes it's way too late and it's getting to be more and more unpredictable you know the winters have have been more unpredictable and the precipitation in general up in that northern part of Minnesota has really increased too. And that throws off um, the timing of insect hatch. And the insects that you need for brood rearing, if the insects are too big, those little chicks, they can't get the food that they need. So it's called, it's, it's like that synchrony between when is the food there when's the proper food there and when are the chicks coming hmm. um that's a delicate it, balance it is a delicate balance yep and then um moisture level too during the nesting season and within those you know next two weeks of a chick's life like the first two weeks of a chick's life is tough because they can't thermal regulate so they can't control their own body temperature so a lot of time they depend on mom for that or the hen for that um, so if it's really wet or there's a hailstorm, you might lose a lot of um, chicks to hypothermia as well. So. Will, they, will the populations move farther north? I mean, I'm not saying it's any more stable up there, but if, uh, say, say it's generally getting warmer, right? Mm-hmm. Will they, like, that? will that population find a new home or will it die out? So the other thing about prairie grouse in general that make them really unique is that they have dancing grounds right. that there is a lot of fidelity when it comes to going back to those dancing oh, yeah, grounds yeah. so that we call them lex um both prairie chickens and sharp tails have them 
as well as um, sage grouse. Yep. So they have these lex, and you'll hear about um, lex blinking out. And that's where the place where that lek is is no longer conducive hmm. for either um, the actual, you know, act of dancing on that dancing ground and attracting mates or the nesting habitat isn't good. So I, th- I don't think that they would end up moving or shifting. I think they're just going to end up blinking out. So sh- there are sharp tails in Canada. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but prairie chickens were more at the northern end of their range to begin okay. with. But it's it's just, I think that site fidelity has such a big thing to do with them not moving. And it takes a long time for a new luck to get established. So with, I have a, this might be a convoluted question. You can edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to post tonight, so, it, so make it good, Dave. We're, we're editing it live. It's called live editing. Uh, going back to how a prairie, you know, is young and then, you know, eventually... W- will maybe change into a woodland. Mm-hmm. So if that were to happen, you know, say back before all of us were here, mm-hmm. and if that were to happen in this area where they had those leks, then would those birds find a new place to do that? Or would, would that be a generational thing? Like it would take their kids and their kids to eventually move somewhere else. I think it takes their kids and their kids to move somewhere else. Yeah. Like they're, Like, don't get me wrong, there are instances of birds moving like 50 miles 100 miles so when i did my Uh my um master's research on sharp tails over in northwest north dakota and the oil fields over there they found one of our birds in the turtle mountains and the only way they found it was by doing um and turtle mountains are in the southeast part of north dakota right uh, they are more like central, South central, but uh, it's a long, it way. is a, it is a long yeah, way wow. for that bird to travel. Um, so, I mean, we had some of our birds moving a, a, a long way, but it's like, where are they moving to? Yeah. I think sometimes they mm. just disperse to try to find another area and it just doesn't not work as easy out. Now, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So. So we're, we've traveled to, I think we've been in three counties today. We've been in Pope, Stevens, and Douglas County mm-hmm. where we've hunted. As you look at this area and you can, you know, that's, it is that transition between prairie mm-hmm. to the west, right? Mm-hmm. And then the early successional deciduous forest as we continued to head mm-hmm. to the east. Yep. That's known as what? The Glacial Ridge, right? Part of part of this yes so it's actually there's some really good examples of looking at um the lake shore of glacial lake agassiz so if you this is in south dakota but if you head south on i-29 and you know the hill that you go up to get to Summit? Mm-hmm. Summit, South Dakota. Summit, South yeah. Dakota. The Millbank area. Yep. That hill that you go up uh-huh. to get up onto the Prairie Coteau, you are coming up out of the old lake bed. Really? So you can see that. Up in Detroit Lakes, um, It's if you are on US 59 between Ogama and Callaway, you can look west into the Red River Valley and it's flat. And then you look off to the east and 
you can see the landscape go right. up and you can see the change in right. the habitat. It's like there are trees up there, there's grass down here. <laughs> yeah, well. So so yeah, you can really see the difference. Um and that transition in the state, sometimes it's like, you know, instant mm-hmm. that you can see it. So when you're walking some of these spots, which is we're getting in that transition zone, mm-hmm. are you are you thinking, boy, I'd really like to put some cows there or this yeah. really needs a burn? Yeah, sometimes that last unit that we, that, um, we were walking, I was noticing quite a bit more brown grass in there. And it, it did look like they were grazing the northern portion of that unit um you know and it's they're probably going to do some sort of you know rotational grazing um out there but yeah there's definitely things where i'm like you know what i would i think you know we could probably increase the the diversity of the grasses and the flowers out here or um you know we can take out some of this dogwood and some of this sandbar willow and um you know some of these tree species too to uh you know get those off of the wetland perimeters too and then get them out of the the um, prairie to keep it more prairie in this area it it's a wonderful transition to a blog you wrote today which was titled i'm talking to to dave dave wrote um thunder on the prairie which is on our website as of today. And one of the key lines there is, we now know what some have always known, which is that we we cannot destroy just a part of the landscape. Explain that. Put that into <clears throat> to words for us. Well, I don't feel kind of silly talking about it next to biology. <laughs> 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 From my humble point of view. Uh, it. I think it's been kind of maybe taken for granted for a long time that that we can kind of use whatever we want or destroy what I don't know if destroy is always a conscious thing but um I think the the looking at a landscape as one one organism everything together right and it's amazing to to see what happens when you take one little piece out of that and even how you're talking about how all these things work together the timing of the um, the the insect hatch mm. and all of that that's so intricate and everything depends on every little thing else in that area and so you know if you if if we uh, somehow damage part of that landscape it really ends up ripple you know like a ripple effect on the entire area even a lot of times up to us you know and that's what I think anyway yeah it it, it was really powerful because I I thought about it in you know, it, you, you were talking about the prairie landscape and the writing, but it, I mean, it, it leads, connects to water, right? Water sure, quality. Yeah. And, and you see that everything we hunted today, Becca, was waterfall production areas. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. And, Duck stamp dollars paid for that. I right? mean, that paid for pheasant habitat. It paid, paid for the habitat for all sorts of things. Right. How many years did we spend filling in wetlands to right. build it, strip it, malls or whatever? And, and that's what I was thinking of. Like, you know, we. Let's link. Try to link this all together because we talk about well, pheasants forever did this, or duck stamp dollars did that, or we're doing this for prairie chickens and that for sharp tails. But it to me when when we're thinking about all those things and then connect it to your to your blog, right? And it's yeah, we're trying to influence bits and pieces. We're all trying. Everybody's trying to do the same thing, right? You know, but it's probably makes more sense for people to focus on. A certain habitat or a certain uh, animal in w- that which they're trying to help, maybe mm-hmm. to put it simply. But 
in, in the end, it's everybody, it seems like all those organizations are working towards the same goal. Um, and they're really helping each other probably along the way as well. It's, it's building that healthy habitat, like mosaic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the quilted blanket, like everything kind of working together, but it's one functional unit. And it's also creating like a self-regulating habitat. You know, right. it's, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, we've already put our finger in there. So it's never going to function like it did, mm-hmm. you know, 200 500 years ago but when we come up with a plan for doing a restoration on a unit you know we're going to put in a high diversity seating because that is ultimately going to do a better job of regulating itself and keeping keeping um you know the the invasive species out far better than a low diversity seating and like what you were saying before that natural process a lot of those aren't can't really happen anymore right like Mm -hmm. the fire uncontrolled fire is not really possible now i mean it's definitely possible it's but it's it's not uh preferred at the moment because there's so many people live around there so you can't have like the the complete natural cycle happen in a lot of those places now that we've surrounded it it's kind of our job to take care of it I guess. yeah mm-hmm. there's not as many buffalo the, the fire's harder to come by yeah but exactly. we have becca yeah yep. <laughs> <laughs> becca the believe buffalo. me if i if i had my druthers like we would be like uh, so up on the wabe national wildlife refuge in south dakota there's a bison farm right next to it and i always thought i was like gosh it'd be so cool to have buffalo yeah, out there yeah. like it would just be so I awesome just added them but. to uh i grew up in mankato right in uh Minneopa state park mm-hmm. a few years ago put a, a small buffalo Herd oh, okay. back in there mm-hmm. on the top, and in that st- that state park has got a Miniopa Creek, which is a waterfall and, and kind of a wooded creek bed. But the top is they've restored that into prairie. Um, used to be farm fields, and now there's there's uh, buffalo grazing up there, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. I've taken my kids to see them. It's 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 awesome to see them there. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting too, like the difference between having bison graze and having cattle graze. Mm-hmm. Like there's been a lot mm-hmm. of studies really? too that that compare what is the actual effect of having bison in here and what is the effect of having cattle. You know, it's the, mm-hmm. it's, you know, how many pounds per square inch that that animal puts on a hoof. It's mm-hmm. how big that hoof size is. It's how compacted that soil gets. What happens to microbes in the soil? What happens to seed bank in the soil? What happens if you have a super high intensity um, graze like you typically get with bison or if you have a more longer prolonged grazing and disturbance like you would typically get with cattle so that's a really like if you want to do some that's some research on a cool topic is look at the well, difference between cattle and bison and my, grazing. my guess would be that because the bison were naturally the ones that did it for so long here that they're probably the preferred method right i would have to think so yeah but i don't I, a bison fence would cost a lot of money <laughs> so <laughs> so we'll we'll take cattle and then yeah, plus yeah. that also helps you know local Farmers and ranchers, oh, sure, you know, yeah, it gives it gives them more more um, acres to graze. Got to find a way to incentivize raising bison more. <laughs> I guess yeah. maybe then people <laughs> will do that. Yeah. Well, I I think about all that and connecting the dots, and I I come back to a part of our conversation on Monday, which was the legacy amendment in Minnesota, and the fact that you know that. that Minnesota voters in 2008 put dollars into a fund that 
not only creates public land through acquisition, but funds restoration. Because one of them, and we've all heard the laments, um, and frankly, more so 10 years ago than I do today, but the laments about, gosh, I just walked that waterfall production area and all it was was brome. Mm-hmm. Just brome, brome. And we talked, Dave, you I and I talked about brome. brome. today. And, and Becca, the, you can speak to this better than I. There, there are some benefits to brome. So right? back in the days, brome was planted by Fish and Wildlife Service and DNR because it was known as dense nesting cover. Sure. And that, for a short period of time, provided good nesting habitat for ducks and waterfowl. But... Um, and even oh, pheasants. And pheasants. pheasants. Nest yep. And yep. But, you know, after doing a lot of research, people kind of realized like, ooh, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're you know, kind of fixing that as well. Plus, you know, Kentucky bluegrass, that's another thing that um, has invaded the prairies big time as well. So where, why? I, I want to say like it comes in sometimes from like people's, people's yards, yards right? hmm. and That's some of the seats common. there. Like, like you just even if you go to some WPAs or WMAs and there's a sign and it says like, you know, give invasives the slip and there'll be a thing there for you to brush your boots off oh, right. because you're, yeah. you could potentially be bringing in seed. invasive seeds. It's yeah. Like it's the, crazy. The stop aquatic hitchhikers things that, yep, that, that sure. Minnesotans are also familiar with, you mm-hmm. know, uh-huh. drain your boats, stop spreading stuff around. And now it's taking part on the prairie. Yeah, definitely. Yep. So one of the other criticisms that you sometimes hear related to grazing is, boy, it can create like tough to walk spots, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So so is there any way to address that or is it simply a trade-off and, hey, you want better habitat, Yeah, there I mean, is a trade-off. Buy a better pair of boots. Are you yeah. serious? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I as – as a, Have you ever walked through some of those? Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's tough. As, as a person with a little foot, like sometimes that can be an ankle breaker, like you know, for me. But I think sometimes um, – you know, maybe just putting up some, some of like the, you know, the non-permanent fence in some of those red areas. Get but closer to the wetland. Yes. But at the same time, it's like that area still does need disturbance. So yeah. I do think that it is a trade-off yeah. of that, you know, so it's, it's tough. <laughs> how can't long, please everyone. How long uh, would the process be of taking a piece of land that you feel needs to be grazed, having it grazed? And then what's next? Is it planting? So sometimes it just needs the graze. And then that'll take care of itself. Sometimes. Right. Um, it, the timing of the graze and the intensity of the graze is also very important. And is In this ter- like a five-year? You know, once that thing's grazed down, when 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 is it, I mean, simply maybe, like when is it good to walk again, hunt again? So I think in terms of hunting it, if – if there's a property that has been grazed and I go out there, I'm like, eh, not going to hunt that this year. The next year, it's grown up enough to where you can okay. go out and hunt it and to where I think it holds birds, like, just in my personal experience. But um, sometimes in terms of just habitat quality, just the grazing 
will help to to knock back mm-hmm. you know some of the the invasive species that are coming in or just you know help with a little bit of regeneration sure. um but sometimes um you know you could graze or hay just to get the biomass so all the above ground stuff off and then what we'll do is we'll come in and we'll till it and start and over. then we'll start over that way but sometimes it's like we just need to get that top layer of stuff off right. so that we can till it and we can work up the soil and then we can like have a really good seed bed for mm. for putting down a new seed mix so on the north side of the last property we walked tonight mm-hmm. you know it was recently grazed mm-hmm. probably two years so in our episode yesterday i admitted that i now need to have like a grassland like age journal mm-hmm. to, to like keep track of how old some of the habitat mm-hmm. is so i know like when, when to go back when to go back when yeah. it's prime so if i'm keeping my journal that spot in two years should be I'd say holding. I'd say next year next you could year. probably go back. But one thing that I think if you're you're kind of thinking about what's the age of this grass stand is look down at your feet and look at the amount of dead vegetation down there. So that's what we call litter. Um, so look at that litter layer. If it's a, a really thin litter layer, then it's newer. Hmm. Um, you know, sometimes you could burn a unit in the spring and by july the big blue stem is taller than your you know taller than me but there's like no litter on the ground (laughs) and then other times you know there can be like you know eight to 12 inches of litter and that's when you know like hey we got to get in here and start to to get some of that litter up so we can get regeneration and we can kind of like you know get that seed bank activated too again so um, we can get some more diversity that way. I've heard biologists talk about the seed bank before mm-hmm. and about, you know, the, a, a prescribed fire will release the seed. Mm-hmm. Explain how that works a little bit more. So when, obviously when plants grow, they make seeds, right? Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the year, they're going to drop those seeds. And some of them um, get into the soil in the next year and they grow. And sometimes they just sit and kind of like hibernate in the soil. And it takes a disturbance for them to get going again. Hmm. Um, And it could be like, it could be years that seeds sit in the seed bank before they finally germinate and come back up. That's the seed bank. That's the seed bank. Yep, it's just in the soil and they just sit in there. And it, yeah, it it could be years and years before they they um finally germinate. Or I've even um in my old job when I worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service, my my manager made a comment one time where he was like, you know, we reseeded that unit, and there was some really like rare flower that came up. He's like, that was not in the seed mix. Wow. So it could you know even us turning over the topsoil sometimes you know that's a good disturbance for that it it works for sure my brother and sister-in-law are are both ecologists and they have their own little business in the twin cities and they've been doing a lot of work in the sand plains of blaine and specifically what they're doing is disturbing the soil Mm -hmm. and they made this huge machine on their own that um, attaches to the front of a skid loader and all they're doing is tearing off the top layers Mm -hmm. of soil and they don't reseed it and they just let it go, 
and then they go back there and they they check all the plant life that comes mm -hmm. up and they're getting wildflowers and other species that are coming up that haven't been recorded in that area for almost a century. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's just, it's just amazing. The seeds are just sitting. They're just sitting there waiting for the disturbance. Yeah. You know how jack pines, mm -hmm. you have to have a fire for the jack pine pine cone to release the seed. Mm -hmm. Is there any grassland um, parallel? Is there anything that absolutely needs fire to release a seed? From a, f a, a flower or a prairie grass? I'm sure there are, but I'm not a botanist. Nothing, nothing so, and so nothing off like core. the top of my head, but fire is just such a good regenerative thing. It's but sort of just removing the litter and opening it up for others. It's removing the litter, opening it up for others, doing some, like, you know, regeneration in that way, but it also inhibits some growth. So hmm. the smooth brome and the Kentucky bluegrass that we have are called uh cool cool season grasses so those grasses you're gonna see emerge first in the spring um a lot of the invasive grasses that we have are those cool season grasses so what a lot of people will do is they'll burn in the spring when they're in their active growing phase to kind of knock them back and try to like you know stop mm -hmm. them dead and then Later in the summer, when you get a lot of the warm season natives, like the big blue stem, the little blue stem, the Indian grass, you know, that sort of thing, that fire really, you know, kicks those into high gear hmm. later on in the season. So if you burn in the early part of the year mm -hmm. when brome is coming up and you knock it back, will you knock it back for good with one fire? Like you look at these WPAs. And so many WPAs mm -hmm. are kind of choked out with brome. No, I mean, it, it won't. It'll help, but it, it probably won't, hmm. you know, totally get rid of it. But the other thing, you know, we're talking about smooth brome and Kentucky bluegrass and the, that monoculture and how it's kind of undesirable. But there's also such a thing as a low diversity mix where if you've ever walked a field and you're like, this is just straight up big blue stem mm -hmm. there is nothing else in here mm -hmm. there aren't any flowers in here there's really not any other grasses in there you know that's also something that we're trying to avoid mm. so in that circumstance what we might do is we're like okay they you know the, the management doesn't necessitate for us to totally rip this out like we have good components in here. We just need to stimulate it a little bit different. So in that instance, we might do a f like a late summer or a fall burn to inhibit some of those warm season native grasses in order to stimulate some of the forbs that might come up earlier in the spring or some of the cool season natives that we have. <laughs> It's intricate. You're, you're, yeah, you're, your whole job is just this dance with Mother Nature. It is. It is. It's, it's really tough sometimes. And, you know, there have been so many people who've done research on this to get us to the point where it's like we have this knowledge today and we have these tools today to try to get things back to the way right, they and were. What you guys are doing will be doing the same thing for the next, you know, 50 years down the line, they'll mm -hmm. learn from the work done now and be like, God, we really missed that brome. <laughs> <laughs> what did they do? Yeah. <laughs> I know sometimes when I'm when I'm walking like really tall, thick stands, a big blue stem, I'm like, gosh, I really want to go out to the short grass prairie, yeah. like out in the Dakotas <laughs> where it's just so much easier to walk. But 
So I think I was thinking about three years ago, right? You you grew up, Dave, as an outdoors person, an, an angler, and you you love the outdoors. You love the North Shore. You grew up in Mankato on the on the prairie, or the edge of the prairie, mm-hmm. anyways. And three years ago, you picked up a shotgun for the first time and, and started bird hunting. And you've been sitting on. This podcast for 52 minutes and three seconds. God, time flies. <clears throat> we haven't talked about music. <laughs> we haven't talked about Jim Harrison or wine or right? literature, <clears throat> baseball. So this has been fascinating for me. I'm you're completely captive. I mean, I can see you're, and even in the field all day today, you were looking at the plants and the hunting. And yeah, it's fascinating what, what, to me. What, like, what, how is hunting changed your perspective over the last couple of years uh, i i would say it, it's made me pay much closer attention to where i'm walking <laughs> and i think that's transferred over everywhere yeah. <laughs> but it, it is a whole different point of view when you're walking on a hunt than just up until that point just hiking or whatever mm-hmm. you know um just attention is so much more focused and i think that uh, follows, you know, following that path leads to like figuring out, um, what, what, what is this vegetation? Why are these birds in this and not this, Mm -hmm. you know? And so you start to, uh, I I would like to, and I have been a little bit, you start to learn a little bit about, about the landscape. And I feel like the more I learn about it, just the deeper it gets, you Mm know? Um, it's, it's, uh, it's it's just like we were saying before it's just really it's such a balance everything is such a balance out there and um even just even just something as simple as walking around on a prairie and learning the name of the grass that you're walking on you Mm -hmm. know yeah when you started that i've just i've paid more attention to where i'm walking it's like yeah, there's a lot of holes out yeah. there. That's where I thought you were. I thought you were making well, a joke. Well, there's that too. But there is. For, no, for Andrew me. went down pretty hard today. There was a. No, I didn't go down. Yeah, it was yesterday. <laughs> yeah. 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 That, could, but that was a gopher did. hole. Yeah. I have long legs, that long enough to where it didn't hit me like right at the knee. But if I was a little bit shorter, that could have. Yeah. That could have inspired. So you can. Well, three of you can probably speak to the this maybe, but for me as a newish hunter, still new. I mean. A handful of times. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the attention I'm thinking of a little bit is is honestly just like the suspense of waiting for the bird to pop up mm-hmm. and just like that kind of walking where every, you're looking at every little detail. We do it in grouse woods as well, where everything is so focused. You know, mm-hmm. and maybe as you get used to it for years, that that dulls a little bit, but it still scares the hell out of me every time it happens. You know, uh, you have a bird dog now. Yeah, he's earned it. Uh, explain the story of Herbeck. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know where Herbeck's story begins, but I, with me, it begins with, uh, with me ad- adopting him, um, God, I guess three years ago, <clears throat> two years ago, somewhere in there. Now I can't even remember what year we, I picked him up. Um, and just, you know, before I started hunting. So wait, this is the third year hunting. So yes, been, you would have had Herbeck four years It would have been that spring before that before our first hunt okay i just picked him up okay um so anyway he uh was with me before all of this started and now that i've fallen you know head over heels in love with bird hunting naturally a a guy wants to maybe think about getting a bird dog Um, however we have a couple dogs in our house already and it's a pretty small house and you know kids everything else that's going on i just just wasn't going to happen 
as far as getting a dog. Uh, so I decided to take this year to take her back to uh, a kennel. We'll give him a shout out, Dawkins. Yeah. Uh, kennel, and just see if I could get him in the the bird and gun program, which is a two week. <coughs> excuse me. Stays there for two weeks, and they and they and they see what they can do. You know. Um, so I had to go down there for, and I'll, I, I should go back a little bit. Herbeck is a is a is a complete mutt, and but they think maybe some Australian Shepherd, and then the rest is anybody's guess. Um, so anyway, I went down to Dawkins. I brought Herbeck down there, and I asked him about it. And the uh, Mike, the guy I was working with there, you know, we w- went out, and he's just got to see if the dog has a prey drive or mm-hmm. has has any kind of interest in it at all. So we threw some birds out and threw some dummies out and stuff like that. And he was super interested. He went back and got them, and uh, so they generously said that the, yeah, they'll keep them for the for the for the uh, for the training session. Um, and then maybe like I said, it's two weeks long. So maybe four days into it or something, I get a call from the kennel saying that you know ever since I left, the, the, he kind of lost interest in the whole game, and that maybe it wasn't going to work out after all. Mm-hmm. So uh, the next morning, I was getting ready to go down there and pick him up. And uh, they called back right as I was getting ready to leave. And we're like, hey, did you leave yet? I said, no. It's like, well, we were trying to catch it before you came down because something happened this morning. Like a light switch just turned on and he's just going after birds like crazy. <laughs> so we <laughs> like to keep him. <laughs> it was like, it was like a right. threat, that phone call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somehow we heard what was going on. So were you... Were you excited to be getting your dog back home of when course. you got that call? Yeah. Or were you more disappointed and I, like, ah, Well, bummer. I tell you, I went in with it. And that's like I said to them. I so I have no expectation here. Yeah. We don't, I don't know what DNA is in this dog. I don't know if he cares at all. I love the guy. He's my best buddy. Mm-hmm. I'll still walk around with him. He can still come out. You know, but we might as well check it out. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean... I was, you know, when I was going down, I wasn't like bummed out, you know, whatever. I was just like, oh, I'll go get him. I'm just gonna have him home. Yeah. Um, but then I was excited, however, when they gave me a second <laughs> call. I was like, all right. And so he stayed there the rest of the time, and it was the day for me to come pick him up. And uh, maybe you, I don't know if your dogs have been through this before, but you know, they, I go there to get him, and they try to hide me from her back, mm-hmm. and so they can put on a little show. And there's this little carved out area where they uh will you know they'll do some bird work over him while i'm there yeah however herbeck busted me right when the right when the truck door shut he started freaking out i could see him across the field (laughs) (laughs) but however that being the case i still got to watch he still did great um he 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 found birds in the grass he retrieved them after they came down Mm. and i saw they i got you know four or five videos of him doing this and i was like who are you? (laughs) 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 And, you know, he's still Herbeck. So he's still this like overly friendly part shepherdy kind of dog. But um, we went up to grouse camp a couple weeks ago. And uh, when I went off on my own with Herbeck on the last day, uh, we we were, we were walking through this, this patch that Bob had recommended. So I could shout out to Bob. (laughs) (laughs) And he found, uh, he was able to spot and, and flush up a grouse that I promptly missed. And, uh, not to be discouraged. We went in the woods after it and found it again. And I finally, uh, was able to, to shoot the bird and Herbeck was able to find him and, uh, brought it back to me. So it was a pretty beautiful day. I mean, that's, 
when you told me that story, it was, you know, it was a it's team incredible, effort. right? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, incredible, it's incredible for. A, a, I mean, no idea really what the dog's background no. is, and even what you think you know, it's a shepherd, right? That's yeah. Sh- and you can see that when we've hunted as a group. Oh, yeah, he tries Herbeck, to get everybody together. Herbeck's trying to hurt that's, us the whole time. <laughs> that's the one thing with him is that when he's in a group, it's not, uh, it doesn't work as well. I'll say that in my ex- experiences in both. He's much more concerned with the other dogs and the other people, mm-hmm. mainly the other people. He just wants everybody to pet him, and he wants to, like, get everybody back into the herd. Uh, but when it's just the two of us, he acts a lot different. Yeah. I don't know. When we walked with them uh, this evening, he did better. He did, he was than doing he had he was before. Doing great cause yeah. He kind of warned us about that. He's like, "Well, yeah. if he starts trying to kind of herd people mm-hmm. or just say hi to you, I might, you know, pull him back uh-huh. or something." Yeah, I just don't want him to be in the way, you know. But. And he was doing great. And I, I looked up at you at one point. I'm like, "He's having a blast." I'm pretty sure he's smiling. <laughs> yeah, <right>? yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a he's a great dog to begin with, you know. And um, so just to have that little bit of of a uh, little bonus section added on has been really cool and i'm so it's just like a little uncharted territory so it's really fun to see you know yesterday when i was on my way up to meet you guys we stopped and hunted a a, a wildlife management area and he he flushed a hen and he flushed it on his own which was the first time it's happened where it's like i had no idea there was a bird there Mm -hmm. and we were walking and he went up in front of me and stuck his nose in the grass and a hen jumped up and he took off after it like a bullet and so it's it's like okay that 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 could work like if I was mm. able to shoot that bird and was able to not miss that bird, he probably could have found it. Hmm. Herbeck's just an adult onset hunter. Like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're perfect for each other. And and uh, a couple of months. <laughs> well, and we're in in the midst of a pandemic, which makes it awfully hard for a recording artist to uh, hold concerts. Yeah, very much unemployed at the moment. But it's. It's fall and you get a bird dog now. Yeah, I know. It's it's, yeah, it's <laughs> things are looking up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we've talked a little bit. Your the your dream destination for folks like as a new as a person getting into this. Where okay. where's um you, you're thinking about a, a particular place to go hunting? I want to go to the sand hills. And, and what's because you've mentioned this to me a couple times, uh-huh. and you saw it for I think for the first time I when did. you went to. To do the meat eater recording, yeah, right? Yep. I had a couple uh like the last straggling solo shows for the time being in uh, Wyoming and Montana. And I decided that it uh, was gonna make a little road trip out of the deal. I had two shows and a that meat eater podcast and they were all kinda separated by a few days. Mm. So I had about a little over a week, week and a half. Um so I took the long way, right? I took I decided I wasn't gonna drive on the interstate if I could avoid it. So I took that route through I think it's twenty, US twenty through northern Nebraska. Um and went through the sand hills for my first time, which I uh just pretty much blame Jim Harrison for that. <laughs> Here, we're back. Right? Now we're back. Now we're yeah, yeah, yeah we're talking Jim Harrison. Uh but you know, he had written so much about how much he loved that neighborhood and um mm-hmm. it was on the way, you know, pretty much. So I went there and just, you know, camped out for one night there and spent two days driving around all sorts of different windy roads in that neighborhood. And it just seemed, it's so eerie and cool, mm-hmm. you know. So that's, yeah, I want to get there. I'd really eventually love to get to the Southwest as well because I've always loved New Mexico and, and Arizona and that neighborhood. Yeah, one of our podcasts a couple ago, uh, one of the guests said, you know, just upland birds just live in beautiful places. Yeah, that's a, that's. And, you know, now I'm really interested when 
the world sort of normalizes again and you do go back on tour uh-huh. and you know because there's you get to go to some just amazing places through your work yeah right? absolutely it's places i never would have seen otherwise for it, sure and, and as we started to become friends a couple of years ago like i remember you were doing a th- where's the gorge in washington, washington eastern washington <laughs> I think you were backstage of the gorge. Yeah. You snapped a photo and he texted me. And he's like, "Does this look birdie?" <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that? Yes, yeah. Right? I mean, the thing about that all the time, everywhere. You know? So it's, like, it's your fault. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna can't start just sit and enjoy a view anymore. I it's know, like you can't walk yeah. through a WPA without thinking about what needs to change. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna tour with your your shotgun. You just might have to have more days off on the road. You know. I bet you could arrange that. I could also, it's not, you know, it's not like concerts start at 9 a.m. or anything. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you got plenty of time during the day to to go chase birds with her back and still make it in time for the festival. Talk to the booking agent and have a bird tour, see if the guys are into it. Well, obviously, it's it's hard to to catch your your shows these days, but if folks want to um, listen to your music, support... uh, Dave Simonette, who is, I'll say it again, a, a, a dues-paying member of Pheasants Forever, <laughs> and he basically helped us, uh, you know, generate 400 plus members through through the Trampled by Pheasants collaboration. So thank you for that. How can that's really awesome? How that I'm happy about that. It, cool. It's it's well, like I've Good told job, you, everybody. there's there's the connection by us both being our, our organization and your band and and. Um, um, your home base being Minnesota. There's so much overlap in yeah. terms of fandoms. And as I've told you many times, there's a um, a ton of biologists that are also trampled by turtles fans. Uh, I'd like to do a study on that. Yeah. <laughs> there's <laughs> the a demographic there. you had no idea no about. No clue. Huh? No, but, but happy if, about it. If, if folks want to uh, check out your music or support... Uh, um, your work yeah tramplebyturtles.com deadmanwinter.com and you can find both of those entities on all of your favorite social media and outlets. Redtail your yeah, solo solo record Redtail that got released right as the pandemic began so there's I've got so many of them in my basement so and, and for, for folks that um, check out Redtail that was recorded um, right next to a trout stream. So you were f- trout fishing while you were recording yeah. that one. Yeah, that's that's true. We've worked at there's a studio pachyderm uh, outside of Cannon Falls, Minnesota, and I've done really the last two trampled records, uh, a couple of my own albums there, and produced a few albums there. Worked there quite a bit. The cool. tri- yeah, the fishing is is a great bonus. <laughs> it is. Uh, Andrew, what do we miss on the recap of day four? I think we did a pretty good job covering it. Um, other than we had a pretty special and unique moment. Um, Indeed, we we happen to be hunting in the general area in which um, our Western regional rep, Matt, lives. So we swung by his place to uh, have our tailgate lunch, and his kids are around. So we were able to get him, his wife, and his kids afield for, for a quick hunt behind uh, your pooch. And <laughs> his, his son is just starting to get into uh, firearm safety. So he was able to carry the, the BB gun around and both Logan and I were in the background taking photos, but subconsciously we're both like really just paying attention to the kid just to see like mm-hmm. how dialed in he is. Um, Cause he's only nine. Right. And he was flawless. 
The gun was always straight up in the Port air. arms. Yep, he was he was totally <laughs> engaged, and uh, even his daughter was just nothing but smiles. And uh, I think that moment meant meant a lot mm, to him. That's great. He, he's been uh, dogless for I think a couple of years now, and he mentioned that this trip has definitely kind of expedited the fact that I'm I'm, I'm getting a dog, and mm. I, I think being able to walk a, a field with his kids just just cemented that. Cool. Um, so that was that was a a very special. Uh, field three bonus, if you will. Yeah. Um, but other than that, you know, we we knocked down two more roosters today. We saw plenty of hens. Minnesota has has not disappointed. I, I fully believe um, the population uh, index being being up in terms mm-hmm. of what the reports were from uh, you know the roadside counts this spring. When I, you know, Tanner mentioned it last night, and he said an astronomical number like 146 percent. That's up in his yeah. in his specific right. area. And for, for me, I, maybe I'm a skeptic. I don't know, but like, it's like <laughs> sure, I'll see it when I believe it. Uh-huh. Or I'll believe it when I see it. Um, and it, it seems like compared to the previous few years, there are more birds. The crops being out earlier than normal normal are certainly playing into that. But all that means, folks, is get out there now before the snow starts mm-hmm. flying. Even though Dead Man Winter did bring the snow today, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. We did have the a little sand. snow squall, didn't we? Yeah, that was crazy. It was, and the temperature dropped. Just uh, a little reminder of what's coming. It, it's not too far behind. No, it's this not. weekend. Yeah, that's right. It's the prediction. Get out there, folks. That's, the birds are waiting for you. Yeah, that's very fun. Bird hunting in the first snow is a day you don't want to miss. Uh, all right, so do we have uh, Instagram questions to close out this episode? Um, we do have a few. I was uh, I was a little tardy in terms of, of asking them, but uh, we actually touched on one that I also wanted to hear, which was uh, Herbeck's backstory. Uh-huh. Um, so that was fantastic to hear. Um, someone wants to know, Becca, what's your approach to getting more women into upland hunting? I think just having women mentor women when it comes to hunting because sometimes I think me personally so I didn't start hunting until I was in college until I met my husband I'd come from a family who had hunted but I just never did um so it was different with me in that you know it it was one-on-one between him and I and I was I was comfortable but I think just having other women go out with other women and um you know just kind of uh increase the comfort level for some of that um but yeah I think another hook sometimes for for women and I know that it was a big hook for me getting into big game hunting is having organic food like nothing is more organic than uh you know a wild animal so that has actually really become important for me um in the last few years is eating organic meat and hunting to feed my husband and myself and our, you know, extended family and have, you know, eat clean that way. So I think, um, you know, having, so having other female mentors out there who, you know, get other gals out there, even if it's just for like, you know, a hike while the other one hunts or, you know, you're just sitting there chatting while the dog's working, you know, I think that that goes a long way. And then, um, 
you know, just expanding people's culinary um, horizons. Because that is, like, one of the funnest parts about hunting for me is, like, what am I going to make with this? I have an (laughs) add-on question to that. Is there a resource that any of you know of, uh, say, a a woman wants to get into hunting but maybe doesn't have a friend of another female friend that hunts already? So Pheasants Forever does have uh, women on the wing. Mm -hmm. So I I would ask people to, to go to our website and look that up, and that is a good resource that we are actively holding events throughout the country Great. trying to get like-minded people together to experience these things and hopefully find out how awesome it is. I think, too, if you um, maybe contact your local chapter president, that they might be able to get you in contact or, you know, a, a gal in contact mm-hmm. with, um, you know, another female hunter who's willing to mentor, yeah, you, you know, someone else. So it's a good way to get to the, the mm-hmm. local angle for mm-hmm. sure. And another um, non-PF, but we're partners with, is Becoming an Outdoors Woman. <coughs> it's another nonprofit organization, Bo. They've been around longer than anybody and deserve kudos for kind of establishing a foundation yeah. for women teaching women. Mm-hmm. And, and I can echo that. Because my wife has told me that I suck as a coach. (laughs) (laughs) But there's just a different uh, Mm sort of, well, you can explain it better than I can. You know, sometimes it's just, you know, as much as my husband would hate to hear, you know, it's like sometimes you just have to hear it from another person. Hmm. Sometimes it has to be coached a a different way. You know, sometimes women have to do things different than men. You know, I'm like, I'm 5'4", you know, so it's like, I got to cross a fence different than another guy or it's like, I can't, you know, I can't push brush like, you know, some other people can who are bigger in stature than me or, you know, so it's, it's just even trying to like navigate how you do things different, how, you know, how fitting a gun is different. I, that was a huge thing for me when I started, you know, I started off with a youth shotgun, you know, a youth 20 gauge. And after a while, I was just like, number one, I'm not shooting with my dominant eye, so I can't hit, you know, a bull in the butt with a bass fiddle because I'm not shooting. Repeat, out of the, repeat that, please. Yeah. A <laughs> bull in the butt with a bass fiddle. That is like my, go. that is my grandpa's description of his dad's shooting ability. Um, so, you know. You're going to use that on me tomorrow, aren't you? <laughs> Very likely if you keep it up, Bob. Yeah. So, you know, and then it's, and it's like, you know, uh, just finding a gun that fits, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a youth size or a women's gun. It's just, you know, getting something that fits and, you know, sometimes women can just help each other out or outdoor clothing mm. choices. That's another big thing is being comfortable outside. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I could go on forever about <laughs> that, but I won't. Well, your, your comments about shotguns, I'll use that as a transition to a question for Dave. Someone's just curious, what shotgun are you shooting? I am shooting a Browning Synergy 12-gauge. So why did you go with the, the Synergy? Uh, <clears throat> well, mainly because the f- the, on the first hunt uh, on which I went with Bob, um, th- that was a loner that I used, was the Synergy 20. And I decided to get a 12-gauge because I wanted to, you know, have something I could use for ducks and turkeys and other things should I want to go that route as well. Awesome. But I liked it. It feels comfortable. I like the profile. And now he's hungering for a 20-gauge. I am, yeah. Too many times lugging that thing through the grouse woods. Mm. <laughs> oh, the, the, the grouse woods will do that to you. Yeah. Um, someone was curious if anybody on this crew is shooting a 28-gauge. I, don't, I, don't I think, did. Oh, you were. So this, somebody this spotted week it. This you did? Okay. Uh, yeah, I shot a 28-gauge on 
The days are blending together, obviously, on Tuesday. So um, that was a two-part question. When so I was so- not on WPAs because I don't have steel 28-gauge shells. So you are. Someone must have spotted it. They want to know why. Uh, to shoot uh, the Federal Prairie Storm, um, the br- brand-new Prairie Storm. I wanted to give it a shot. Cool. Because it just came out in 28 gauge this, this year. And Logan uh, brought some a box back from a, a media event. So I uh, gave it a shot. And that's actually the, the two birds that I have connected on successfully were with 28 gauge. Really? I might want to go back. Well, but again, I don't have steel and yep. we've been hunting yep. on. on um, um, so I have a Browning 28 gauge uh, Satori 725 that. Uh, has been the successful gun of the trip for me, but we've been hunting a lot of WPAs. Yeah. Then the last question was, uh, Dave, can we have a PF theme song at some point? <laughs> <laughs> you should do Somebody a theme song for Instagram. the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I can come up with something. I can show you the questions. Somebody put that out there. <laughs> All right. Uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honest answer. It sounds like a fun project. Cool. Well, thank you all. For, uh, being a part of day four yeah and thank you for having me you're you're joining us again for for day five tomorrow too absolutely mm-hmm. so we are we will be in west central minnesota to close out rooster road trip 2020 the responsible recreation edition um so we're running out of days for people to sign up and get a chance at that uh sleek looking browning satori white lightning that you're shooting Absolutely. Go to roosterroadtrip.org, get caught up on all the blogs we've been writing, see the photo galleries. Um, that way you can also link up with our other social media outlets to participate in the contest and, and watch the videos that we're putting out there at the end of the day. But more importantly, you can sign up to become uh, Pheasants Forever. And if you're already a member, extend it out. If you need to renew, this is the place to do it because uh, you'll receive a Browning Prism 3 knife for free automatically. And in addition to that, you will have a chance to win the Browning 12-gauge Satori White Lightning that I've been shooting all week. So, and you mentioned this, but just for clarification, maybe you're a current member, you're getting the magazine. You can sign up for this offer, and we will put an entire full year onto your membership. So, maybe your membership's good until April of 2021. Sign up through the link write a note that it's a renewal we'll tack a full year on you'll get the browning knife and a chance at the browning uh white lightning so we need you folks uh we lost twenty thousand members through the spring banquet season because of the pandemic that's a big number and if you're listening to this podcast uh, you care about habitat you care about birds bird dogs wild places in the prairie that Becca is trying to make even better. Heck yeah. So please join roosterroadtrip.org. And another uh, final shout out uh, to Federal Ammunition, Browning, Apple Autos, Sound Gear, Rufflin Kennels, and Garmin are sponsors of this year's Rooster Road Trip. Um, Those dollars are critically important to helping us deliver our habitat mission as well. So thanks to our our six sponsors for Rooster Road Trip 2020. Uh, Dave, thank you very much for for being on. Becca, thanks for for taking care of the first bird this today. 
Andrew, good show as always. We will uh, we will be back for a final episode tomorrow as we close out Rooster Road Trip. I'm Bob St. Pierre saying always follow the dog. Something good will rise. And maybe your one-year-old Gitchy will retrieve a blind <laughs> pheasant. Well, not a blind. A blind retrieved pheasant out of a wetland. That was the high point of my day and it'll probably be the high point of my year. Go out there and find your high point. All right, folks. Thanks for listening.